Hello and welcome to Artbox. I'm your host, Jason. This is a full interview I did with Tim Cullen and Tatiana Pulaski at Scope Art Fair in Miami Beach in 2019. Tim does photorealistic works of freight train graffiti. And so with Tatiana, we discuss George Vogue's work at Metamorphosis Booth along with the meanings of the works and how long the paint dries. The paint will take a while to dry. You'll hear it with Tim Cullen. We talk about how they got to start and a seahorse. That's right, a seahorse. So with that, sit back and relax and enjoy the interview. Well, thank you first and foremost for doing this. If you could please introduce yourself and please tell me, me a little bit about yourself. My name is Tim Conlon. Um, I'm an artist here at Art Basel, showing my uh, graffiti art that's based off of freight trains. How did you get onto the theme with freight trains? I've been painting freight trains for probably around 30 years. Wow. Uh, started in the early 90s in Baltimore, Maryland. I'm originally from Washington, D.C. I live now in Los Angeles. Um, it's a long story, but eventually um, I ended up doing a show at the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery. And after that museum show, uh, I had galleries approach me and they wanted me to show some of my art that they could sell in galleries, which I was not doing at the time because I was doing uh, what I like to call uncommissioned work on yeah. freight trains. So uh, I decided, okay, I've been painting these trains for a long time. I would like to, you know, maybe still focus on that work uh, since I know the history of trains. I enjoy trains and, you know, that seemed like a draw for what my art should be. So I decided to, instead of just painting graffiti on canvas, I would paint a canvas to look like a real freight train using spray paint and then adding graffiti on top of that. So it looks like a photorealistic piece of a train cut from an actual boxcar. Yeah, no, it, it is very beautiful and the detail that goes into it. And I wanted to ask about, so you also have freight cars that you make. Do you make the freight cars by hand or do you find those like in a, some kind of hobby list? Or well, there's, a, there's a couple different freight cars that I use. So there's these smaller cars called G-scales, oh, yeah. uh, which means a garden scale. Okay. So you might see like these smaller HO scales, you know, a lot of people are familiar with. These are about two feet long and they're called garden scales because usually people would have them outdoors in a garden oh. because you need a long, big winding track to have these trains kind of traverse it. Otherwise, they would just tip over. So yeah, those, those boxcars, you know, you'd find at a hobby shop. Uh, I'd say that kind of uh, collecting and it's kind of died off. So a lot of companies have, have just shut down. So there's only a few that still make these trains. So I've, I've oh, wow. had to hunt them over the years and find wow. these trains. You know, at, at model shops now, I had to like go find them either on eBay or like in old little shops up in Canada or something like wow. that. Wow. So it's getting even more hard for you. It is. Uh, and it originally started uh, back in 2011. There was a show called Art in the Streets in Los Angeles. And I was asked to curate a section of the show that kind of showed the history of graffiti that started on freight trains in the early 90s and kind of match up the artists from different cities across the country because the focus of painting on freight trains is to have your art travel from place to place. Yeah. Whereas, you know, a graffiti writer would usually just paint in a city or back in the days just on a subway car. Yeah. Well, we had the idea, well, why don't we try to make a nationwide, you know, get your art everywhere? Instead of focus, of course, with freight trains is if you see a company, uh, you know, CSX train or some of these smaller train companies that I've painted on canvas, you know that, all right, they go from Baltimore to Detroit because they carry auto parts or yeah. this other train carries uh, bricks because it goes from a certain area of, say, Baltimore again to the Northeast or whatever. So would someone ever get the route that was from like Harpers Ferry, West Virginia to parts unknown because all they send out there is just gravel? 
that that could be yeah i mean about some of your trends you never know where they go because of these bigger companies especially you know they could send something out to st louis and then all of a sudden that train gets split up and the heads then down towards arkansas and then out towards the west so you never know with some of these trains where they're gonna end up some of them though you know specifically if you've painted them at a certain spot where you know all right well this is where bricks are made and they get loaded onto the train you're gonna figure out all right well it's gonna get shipped to another place that unloads bricks and then you can kind of figure out tracing like the company and the train car. So it sounds like you basically, it's like a message in a bottle kind of thing. You put the message in a bottle and you throw it in the ocean. Back in the nineties, uh, before the internet was really kicking off, yeah. it was uh, kind of more of a folk art because we would paint the trains at night and then take a photo in, in the dark on film because we didn't have digital cameras. <laughs> it would leave and take off. Well, there was a, uh, a system called touch trace. It was a, automated phone system so if you look at a freight train on the left hand side there's the name of the boxcar company in initials so okay well csx is an easy one so it just it's says a csx one. yeah and then underneath of that is usually like a six digit number it could be multiple digits but with this automated system that you could type in the csx and then would ask for the car number and you type that in and then the automated return will tell you it's in baltimore maryland on december 4th at 9 p.m. heading towards St. Louis and ah. we'll reach St. Louis December 15th, whatever the date is. Yeah. And then so that way we could tell friends that were in St. Louis, hey, well, we'd have to call them up. Hey, this train's <laughs> heading your way. Could you get daytime photos for us? And then they would take photos, and maybe paint the other side of the train. Right. And then that would come back to us eventually because a lot of these trains are like planes, like they have their same routes that they usually yeah. come back. And so then we would get daytime pictures for them. And then you go develop your film put it in an envelope and then it was like having a pen pal and then you would send these packs of photos wow. that you went and got developed to each other it was a laborious process i did not know that even existed that is incredible that was the original instagram for, yeah, yeah i was for gonna say freight train uh, graffiti <laughs> painting yeah so then over the years you had to have accumulated a lot of, of work essentially tons and tons of photographs of, of all different types of you know yeah. graffiti and again before the advent of the internet you know you would have graffiti showing up from say oakland yeah. and i'm in baltimore and i've never seen a style of graffiti before because each city kind of has its, yeah, own, its own style, style. yeah i mean now with the advent of the internet everybody kind of just copies and yeah. it's kind of gotten watered down but back then it was like wow look at this style like look look what, how did they do this and then you're kind of researching you know but because of trains like here comes that art from whatever city and then yeah. we're sending out baltimore style or dc style to other parts of the country wow man you just blew my mind i mean really i just did not know no because like honestly i just assumed that you just found the train yard you would tag it and or do work on a train right and you just went away or you got you took pictures of it when you could or, or you got friends to do it right i did not realize it was in a system that oh, yeah. it was like basically a way to communicate to other people that and not only that, that just, then, then it made a lot of graffiti writers especially the, the early group of us that started painting these really interested in trains and yeah. these train companies because you're researching okay what is this strange new train car that just showed up in the yard? Uh, where does it go? What is it hauling? And then like, oh, okay. So it's a small short line that goes from say Harper's Ferry to a specific city in Ohio because it's some sort of pipe fitting or something right. that's being shipped. Something very specific. Right. And then you're like, okay, well now I know that line's gonna travel 
through these, you know, different towns or whatever, and people are going to see it. I mean, you, who do I know? Exactly. Or not only that, I mean, you're trying to get your graffiti in front of people, so you have a captive audience as people are sitting at a crossing waiting for these trains to go by. That's or true. they're sitting, like, on a track right next to a highway or whatever. So that was, like, the best way to get your graffiti out there. What, what kind of influences do you draw from then, from these people that you are essentially kind of pin-palling to or from other sources or all the above? Well, when I started painting in, in 93, I was drawing my inspiration from other graffiti writers in Baltimore. You know, okay. I was being influenced by friends I was meeting that were already painting graffiti, learning from them. There's a, there's a mentorship to graffiti, or there used to be, where it was kind of passed down, especially back in the subway days in New York. Yeah. You know, these older guys would pass down styles, and, you know, you would learn how to use paint and caps and whatever else. So, really, I was focused on the Baltimore style. And then from there, I mean, I still kind of kept with that. But then, you know, paint changes. Like, now there's paint companies that make, you know, paint specifically for graffiti artists. Yeah, and I love the tips that are out there now. Exactly. Before, we used to steal our tips off of other products. And, you know, like, Bug and Tar Remover gave you a cap that would spray, like, a huge, like, say, basketball size, uh, you know, output of paint. Other caps would let you, you know, almost a pencil-thin line. But now all that's, you know, produced for you. So it's, yeah. And then the paint's better. So then, you know, all that stuff, you can do more tech. There's more technique to it now. Before, it's just like these caps was very primitive, you know. Yeah. My background has always been more formal. Right. I was a good little boy. I never went out and tagged. Right. But uh, now I'm starting to realize that I, I think I'm missing something in my life. Hey, it's never too late to start painting graffiti. Yeah, I, I'm not condoning destruction of property here <laughs> no. at all, but I am seriously thinking about getting a canvas and doing it. Well, actually, I mean, now it's changed quite a bit from actually when it's I true. was painting uncommissioned work, as I like to call it, to now where there's companies and realtors that want graffiti and street art on their walls. In fact, it's almost a selling point for some of these companies when they're developing either neighborhoods or whatever. They want to have, and then have festivals. I mean, it's now... That's true, there's festivals like Powell has a festival. There's a, there's a whole list goes on now, yeah. yeah. What is your philosophy of art then, and or your aesthetics of art, coming from a background of uncommissioned artwork? Right. So I, I'm no longer focused on my uncommissioned artwork, obviously. <laughs> I don't, actually don't have time for it because I'm doing these canvases, I'm doing the small train cars, uh, I have gallery shows, I'm, I'm doing art fairs and stuff like that. I think graffiti belongs on the street. I think it has a more natural look. I mean, it's, it's all based upon location and, and, you know, putting it in a kind of an out-of-reach spot to make the public look at it and say, like, wow, how did that person do that? Or, man, I see this name everywhere. I think as far as my artwork, I don't want to take just graffiti letters and put it strictly on a canvas. That's why I kind of focused on adding it as an element to the train you know, car. So it's not like a full graffiti piece yeah. on a painting, but it might be a segment of a letter. So it's it's got a different take on it. Like it's just a piece of the whole artwork. It's not strictly focused on that. Now on the train cars, I make those look like an actual freight car that would have been. Yeah, out no, on they, the they are pretty realistic. Those are almost kind of like a small study. So yeah. it would be like a graffiti piece that would have my name and then some characters. And, th- and that's the same thing we would be painting on trains. You know, we would take pop culture characters put it next to your graffiti, which a lot of times people couldn't read, yeah. but adding that character makes people stop and look at it instead of like just like, oh, that's graffiti, I can't understand it. If it's kind of a themed thing, you trick a person to visually like to take a moment, step back and look at it, and if you do your graffiti properly, 
or I mean, it's again up to you. Sometimes you do it for your friends and you make it very hard to read. Right. They can read it. Yeah. Or you make it more legible and then a public could read it. I mean, that's your philosophy, I guess, that you could choose on like who you're making it for. I mean, this would be, I'd say, my artwork is for the public, you know, to kind of see like this is not just just scribble on a train and how, right. you know, this kind of history of it has, has transpired. You want it to be accessible. Right, exactly. At least that's how you started. Exactly. And, and you want to continue doing that now. Exactly. And I want to, paintings are strictly with spray paint. So I didn't want to switch to all of a sudden, oh, I'm going to now do these things in oil paint or I'm going to do it in acrylic because I've learned the, what we call can control. You know, yeah. I can use the spray paint in a different fashion of just, say, spraying a line. I have a couple different techniques where I'm actually misting with certain caps to actually give it like a stippling effect to give it that photorealistic look. Yeah, I wanted to comment on that. When I looked at a couple of the paintings close, when I usually look at a piece of work, one of the things I look at is for brushstroke. Because right. you have very little, if none at all. Well, I, I'm trying to use just the same tools I would use in graffiti. So I'll, yeah. I'll use some markers. I might use a little bit of acrylic to now. There's some newer paintings I've done where the paint's actually peeling off the canvas as it would on a metal train. So there's sub, like, oh, so m you're not using levels. soap or anything. You're actually getting paint that's doing that. Yes, there's oh. multiple lo levels of paint. So I will paint a canvas entirely as a rusted car and then add the painted car on top of that and then be able to peel away so you see the rust underneath. So it's nice. a multi-layered painting, actually. But it's still all done. Even the rusted part is done with spray paint. Well, I'm going to ask two questions sure. in one, in a way. When you do one of the train cars, mm -hmm. Uh, how long does it usually take for you to do that, from uh, conception to all the way that I'm done with the, it? The smaller, like yeah, the smaller ones, cars? yeah. It depends. I'm trying to do them now in batches because of, there's a, a bigger demand. So I will first weather and, and rust all those smaller cars, so it looks like a rusty car before I add any of the graffiti. Ah, I see. Okay. And then gone more so with trying to come up with a theme for each of the cars now. So, like, there's there's a couple up there that have uh, certain old cartoon characters i used to you know love watching on saturday morning cartoons oh, who like, doesn't yeah. right you know and i would sit around and draw while watching cartoons so it's like all right this is kind of a throwback to some of the that yeah. same you know feelings i used to have as a kid In nostalgia the, nothing yeah, wrong exactly. with nostalgia right yeah nostalgia for painting trains nostalgia for these old train cars so, yeah, it's all kind of tied together there. yeah uh, but to answer your question from start to finish if i just started it would take me now probably uh, four or five days. I also paint now the smaller train cars with, with brushes. Also now I've been starting to do these train cars. They'll use paint markers and stuff. But I found if I use a tiny, tiny paintbrush, I can get way more detail. So it's, it takes a lot of time to, to paint them. I was going to say that it's why I asked about the small ones, because usually the smaller the piece, the longer it takes to work on those, as opposed to something bigger. Exactly. And then a lot of times now, it's, it's more, I'll design them all in Photoshop first. Oh, so you're going all digital? Yes, yeah, so I will do digital first. And then it's easier for me to, like, as I'm doing, let's say, the layer, the fill in a graffiti piece. Yeah. Like, I've decided it's going to be on a green train car. And I'll take a photo of the train car first and then layer this all in Photoshop. Oh, wow. And then as I look at the film, I'm like, oh, you know, this fill color doesn't work, so I can just swap it out to a different color. Right. And Design you can see if you like it. Yeah. yeah. And then just lay it out that way. And then actually paint it from that digital file. So you do a lot of research and conceptual research. thinking about it. Yes. And even especially into the paintings, because I'm researching these old train lines, find out what they look like. There's not photos readily available, so I have to rebuild all the logos and Illustrator. Yeah. And I try to do on a one-to-one -one scale, so they're big. You know, so, that, so basically the research process the prep is longer than the actual thing. Yes, or it could be even going through my old photos to find some of these old trains that yeah. have been around for a while. Because so. you, you probably have a lot. Yeah, sorry, I, I have to talk about that. Yeah, there's there's people walking around in costumes here at, at uh, the fair. So anyway, um, uh, now I'm completely distracted. <laughs> it's a seahorse. 
wearing boots, prancing around. Um, so anyway, so you you take your time, right? And you research these things. So in theory, someone could actually look up the, one of these train not nines like CSX and the train car number, and someone could probably find that train. They could. I, could. So I, I, do a, I do a mixture of trains. So some of them I will take the actual train that I like, but maybe it doesn't have graffiti on it, or maybe I don't like the graffiti that was already on the car, or maybe it's too rusted. It's not going to work visually. But I will say take some of my own graffiti that I've done, or a lot of my friends, or actually friends that have passed away and oh. that have painted on trains, yeah. and add them as that segment of... Uh, the graffiti on the train. Exactly. In fact, I did that at Beyond the Streets in New York this past summer. There was three different paintings yeah, I thought of three I saw different that. writers okay. that all passed away. But they all had the same letters in their names, and I kind of showed how they each had their own style for those yeah. letters. So, you know. Well, that's a pretty cool thing to do. Yeah. So how can people contact you? They can contact, well, you can go to my website. It's www.conoperative.com. Um, or you could just Google my name, Tim Conlon Graffiti, and be able to access me. I'm here at Scope at Miami showing with Damien Roman Fine Art, and we're at booth, I think, A11. Well, great. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. Then I came across booth D29 and met Tatina. So, shall I start? Yeah, please introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about yourself and then about the artist. Okay, so we are uh, an art and cultural organization from London. We're called Metamorphosis Art Project, and it's my colleague Eva Megor and I, Tatiana Polinkasev. Uh, we are doing an exhibition at Scope, uh, Miami Beach, together with uh, the gallery from Miami, Knife Gallery, with Massimo Maltese. Uh, we have decided to present only one artist this time because this artist is so particular. He's so unique that we just couldn't mix him with anybody else. This artist does never touch surface of the painting. He never touches the uh, the surface of the canvas. He pours... Right, like he doesn't use a brush. He doesn't do he anything. Yeah. No, he never uses brush. He uses different tools to manipulate paint. So what he does, he pours different viscosity of paint onto the canvas. He manipulates that paint into a shape that he wants to be. Now, for him, the shapes are not the priority. For him, it's emotion, it's energy that he's transmitting. And how he manipulates that paint, how he uses his tools, it all depends what he wants to achieve. Now, his working process is uh, very laborious and it's almost an art performance in its own right. Hmm. He's using uh, poles, uh, fans, uh, different tools to manipulate that paint, but he is holding the canvas, he is shaking the canvas, He's actually uh, manipulating the, the large paintings themselves right. uh, into, uh, and paint on them into position. Now, we are presenting here four cycles of paintings. First cycle is uh, Mesozoic, uh, Mesozoic landscapes. You have to think that Mesozoic was time when, there was, when nature ruled on Earth. Yeah. But there was no man. And he's using quite thin paint. These paintings dry in six to nine months' time. Okay. And he produces this marvelous, beautiful, abstract landscapes. But one of the most important things for him is that he is mixing into his oil paints also UV reactive pigments. So all of these paintings have different aspects. They have second phase. They have different other phase. 
So if you look at them under the white light, you will see these uh, vibrant, exuberant colors. And textural. And they're very textural. Yeah. Maybe Mesozoic is slightly less textural than other cycles of paintings. Right, right, yeah. But we will come just in yeah, a moment we'll to we'll that. Get to that, yeah. I don't want to... Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> After Mesozoic, I think, think about it. The times when the nature ruled. Yeah. Now, he moved on to a second cycle of paintings, that is... Genesis. Genesis, birth of life, right. big bang of life, the birth of man as we know it today, the birth of intellect, the birth of, of thinking man. The composition and the texture of painting reflects that. The composition of Genesis paintings is composition of a big bang. You see that there is a nucleus in the middle and then there are lines and energies bursting out of it. It's done in slightly more viscose paint so that there is this beautiful like a crust, like a moonscape forming around the nucleus. Yeah. And the colors, he's pouring various layers of colors. So certain colors come through from underneath to the surface. Uh, he, he's also used uh, UV reactive pigments. So this painting transforms under the blue light as well. The artist actually poses a question, what is reality? Is it what you see, what is in front of you now under the white light? Right, under normal light. Under right. the normal light. Or is it what you know is there? Because mm. we know he's using UV pigments and we know that these paintings transform, but we, we are not seeing it. Yeah. So it's just a, a food for thought. Well, I, I love the food for thoughts. Yes, I really yes, do. yes. It offers opportunity to everybody actually to to find themselves, to... to uh, open up a dialogue with, with the work of art. Well, what strikes me is that what comes to my mind, and um, I could be wrong, but in my mind, I think of yin and yang, you know, night and day, or, you know, uh, wrong or right, it, it, it kind of um, just a, a contrast, a high contrast in, in that regards. That, that is beautiful what you just said, because uh, nobody said that before. You are absolutely right. But you see, in contemporary art, there is no right and wrong. No, there's it, not. It is what who you are, what you carry within yourself, mm -hmm. what is your baggage, what is your knowledge. That will determine how you see work of art, that will determine how you feel about it. Yeah. Now, the only thing is that if work of art is, is a real work of art, if it's something that is, if it's successful work of art, then it will talk to you, then the dialogue will be opened. Mm. Sometimes we just don't feel anything. Sometimes we don't react. Sometimes there is no dialogue. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's bad work of art. It right. means just it's not maybe for us. Right. It, or, or sometimes it could just be, you know, what it is and nothing more, nothing less. Well, that's kind of... But that's, I kind <laughs> that, of just summed right. up what you just said. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so, so I wanted to ask, how long does it take to paint some of the, the Genesis? Because I, uh, I was told something that I, I don't want to reveal... Just yet, but. <laughs> well, Genesis, uh, it, it's a mix of uh, different viscosities of paint. So obviously less viscose paint would dry faster. Right. It's not about painting because he doesn't paint, but producing work of art, it does go in, in one session. So yeah. it is a performance art. It is, you know, he, he goes into it and he he performs and he finishes the performance. But then the drying period, yes. because he wants to create these beautiful folds and, and this beautiful moonscape on his paintings, he needs to use more viscose paint. Right. So 
that takes a very long time to dry, sometimes two, sometimes three years. Oh, and wow. uh, so these, these works of art are very unique. He cannot repeat himself. But let me just move on from Genesis, yeah, uh, yeah. On, because it, it, it makes all a beautiful story. After Genesis, he painted a cycle that is called Codes. Codes of behavior, codes of communication, codes of learning, rules, restrictions, impositions that we all get from the day we are born, throughout our, our lives and through our education. After Codes, he painted the series called Wings. Wings represent freedom, breaking these chains, breaking these rules and regulations and codes that he obviously felt as a burden. And he just felt so free and so light and so happy. And all these paintings are actually very happy. They have very happy colors. <laughs> now, Winks, uh, he's using the most dense color. And this series will actually take the longest time to dry. But this series of paintings are probably the, the most interesting on a way because they look like moonscapes. Yeah. Look at this painting just in front of us. Yeah, I was going to say, this was what drew my eye when I walked by here earlier. Yes. It, it was just like you said, it, it felt like it was coral. So I, I thought it was, is it ground glass? And I thought, no, nah, it couldn't be glass because it has <laughs> like a waviness of like paint. And and then I started getting closer to it. And it's like, no, that is dried paint. And then the coral kind of came back to mind. Uh -huh. And it's like, that is paint. And then when I was told it took a while, for it to dry, it's like, how was he able to do that to get such texture and, and without having to do a lot of layers? There's not a lot of layers on that. It's no, just a lot of stuff. no, they're not. That's actually a good question. How did he manage to do that? Yeah. Well, we know only part of the story or we know quite a bit of, of his story, but he he started developing his abstract style and this very particular uh, technique in the early 2000s in Moscow. Just to mention, this, this gentleman has two degrees in science and in arts. Yeah. So you have to think he's a scientist. He is experimenting, constantly experimenting with the densities, with paints, with techniques. He's in constant, artist in constant movement. So this is result, this painting in front of us, the green painting called Wings Number no. 3, is actually the, the result of 15 years of experimentation. We have seen some of his earlier works in abstract style uh, without touching the surface of the painting. And uh, they, they are absolutely beautiful, but he did not achieve what he achieved here. Oh. This painting is incomplete. There, there is so much texture in it. It's two meters by one meter 30. And on that surface, it's, it's covered in texture, in folds, in, uh, uh, in, in mountains and, and, and lakes. In, uh, you can do your journey. You can travel through this painting. Yeah, you definitely can. I could see that. It's very contemplative, isn't it? Yes. It's very meditative painting. It's done in these your deep greens and lighter blues and lovely kind of limey yellow, different shades of yellow. But because he's pouring the paint and, and the paint is being uh, mixing uh, on the canvas, you cannot really determine precisely yeah. which color is which color. They all blend, they yeah. all move, there is movement in them. And you can clearly see two parts, uh, wings of freedom, wings, unburdened wings. So I'm so delighted to be able to, to sit here every day and to, to have my, <laughs> my, my time with, the, with these paintings. Uh, 
that offers so much beauty, but so much food for thought, so much meditative power in well, these paintings. Well, there's a paintings. lot of metaphysical going on, too. With yes, this. Ab absolutely. With a lot of the work, but also with this piece that we're talking about. Absolutely. You know, the artist actually considers his, himself to be a co-creator of these works of art with, together with nature. Because he says, you know, I know exactly what I want to achieve. I know exactly where I want to go. But what's going to come out of this painting after two or three years of drying period, yeah. we don't know. We don't know. He doesn't know. <laughs> it's the nature who has the final say in these paintings. And that's why uh, we called one of his previous exhibitions at uh, London Saatchi Gallery, we called it Full Circle, the beauty of inevitability. Yeah. There is so much beauty in that inevitable course that nature takes. And you can't do anything about it. No, you can't. <laughs> you cannot. But the final creation belongs to the nature. He, he's a very special gentleman. I, I Yeah, he's a very patient man. <laughs> and very patient man, very indeed. Very patient. Very patient man. that's why the scientist's coming through. Because scientists, you have to be a patient person, too. And detail and document everything. That, so. that That's very true. That's very true because uh, most of his paintings... All these layers and all these effects that he is achieving, they are due to viscosity of paint. So in order to achieve this beautiful moonscape of a painting, he had to produce a very thick paint. But very thick paint that would be liquid enough for him to be able to manipulate it into place on right. a way that he wanted to create format, to create the, the subject, but yet to, to give it enough space and to develop in, into the folds and to crease up. Well, it's like you said, I mean, it's it letting nature help him manipulate it. I think the term separation might be the wrong way, but you see different colors that don't mix with itself or with other colors, and you have these lines that look like a... A Drip up, lines. Of, yeah, yeah. Like, like geometric lines or like lines in, in, in rock, you know, that tell you the, the different times of periods. But I also wanted to talk about this, these two pieces on, on this little wall over yes. here. It's, it's this kind of turquoisey, dark greenish blue, uh, blue green, and, and they have like little moments of white. The one above it has looks like three islands, in my opinion. I like the one on the bottom because it, it gives this feel that it's like underwater with jellyfish and something on the ocean floor kind of look. That's how I'm interpreting that picture. That is just so beautiful what you're saying because <laughs> we have shown these paintings in London and several different places and it depends who you are and what right. you're normally seeing. That's what you see in these paintings. Yeah, they're called beginnings. They belong to Cycle of Genesis. Okay, so they're part of that series. Okay. Yes. You know, many people saw a very human beginnings in these paintings. Oh, right, right, like sperm. Yes, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Say yes. sperm, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, as, as uh, you know, archipelago and islands in, in the sea as well. But, you know, since he named it beginnings, it's kind of... Right, because it, it, I see what you're saying, because it's suggestive in uh, a way. Because it, yeah. it, it does I, point you into a direction. Some people yes. thought of reproduction for humans. Yes. I thought about yes. the earth because of... Yes. Uh, of how islands then become continents and continents become, you know, uh, yeah. land and all that, what have you. You could also, you think about them on a slightly different way. You know, there is a nucleus and then there are small offshoots from the nucleus. Oh, and, you that. know, beginning and, you know, there is a nucleus and then, you know, that nucleus 
right. produces other. But uh, you see, for the artist, abstraction is very important point because uh, he, he does not want to be figurative. He wouldn't want his paintings to, to be seen as representing something. I don't think he wanted to represent. It's us seeing things in them. But yes. it's not the artist actually painting something because he mm. doesn't paint his... Right, right. He, he, he's producing these works of art in different It's almost you're saying ways. if he's just more or less a vehicle in a way. Yes, yes. But these particular paintings, the, the beauty of them is really that the, his mode, mood and, and, and working mode yeah. was Genesis. So it was a big bang. It was a life. Yeah. Life creation. How you interpret it, how you read into it later, that's different. But you see, interesting thing is that, for example, when he started developing his uh, abstract style, he, he produced beautiful series of paintings in Moscow that when we just, when we met him for the first time, he didn't want to show. And I asked him why. Yeah. And he said, because these were my first paintings in abstract style, and I don't think I achieved an ultimate abstraction i want uh, later on he moved on and and he he developed that abstract style for him the, the figurative style or anything to do with the with figurative is not something that he likes yeah. he says that of course he started as a figurative artist as great majority of artists did they he was trained artist but he said a figurative style for him was like a, like a stone in a shoe he mm. was uncomfortable it wasn't him it wasn't his soul it, yeah. it wasn't his expression yeah, he yeah. was not managing really to speak the artistic language he wanted to speak and it's only in the moscow in the years 2000 and later that he threw all the brushes out yeah. and started developing his technique and and, and his style I and see. actually if you see the the later paintings from maltese period or from uh, british period they are actually more abstract so if you've got more more abstract. Yeah, if you oh, compare wow. them to uh, to the Moscow period. Right, right. And uh, he says that figurative style is like algebra in maths. <laughs> you know, you begin with that. It's necessary. You you have to have it. Yeah. It's important. Yeah, I, it's I very see, important. I, I kind of agree with him. Yeah. Yeah, but then. If you develop as an artist, if if you develop, you move on. You will want to move on from what's yeah. being representative, non-representation. Yeah, I, I, I kind of would buy into that philosophy. <laughs> so he he has many years of artistic experience behind him, and uh, here we are, you know, in this uh, beautiful surrounding uh, by uh, at the scope art fair yeah uh, surrounded by uh, genesis and wings and mesozoic and uh, <laughs> and the beginnings and however you see it you know that <laughs> when you want to see yeah yes well uh, how if people are interested how would they be able to contact you or or the foundation if people are interested we are called metamorphosis art projects from london we have a website and that would be probably the best way. Or they should come to the Scope Art Fair and visit us at the boot and see these amazing pictures in the in, in flash. Could you give me the website? So if anybody wants to contact us, the best way would be really to come to, to, to Scope Art Fair to see in person. But yeah. if they can't, yeah. uh, the, the second best would be really to look at our website right. to see these beautiful works of art and to contact us via, uh, via our website that is www.metamorphosis-artprojects.com Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Yeah.
I want to say thank you to Tim and Tatiana for sitting down with me to do the interview. If you want to learn more information about Tim and his work, go to conoperative.com. He's also on Instagram at conoperative as well. And if you want to learn more about George's work, you can go to Metaphorsis' Art Projects website at metaphorsis-artprojects.com. Their Instagram page is Metaphorsis' Arts Projects, all one word. And as always, you can go to artboxdv.com for more interviews. Until next time, thank you for listening.